0: Clicking and thank you for listening. I'm Doug Wiley, editor in chief of Police One, and this is Policing Matters, the Police One podcast.
1: Hi, welcome back. This is Jim Dudley.
0: So, Jim, um, this week we had yet another coordinated um, attack with uh, two different locations in Brussels. Um, Both of the targets um, uh, suffered uh, explosions uh, and and casualties, numbering upwards of 30, with 230 um, reportedly injured. Um, these were both soft targets, and there's a lot of history behind the, the soft target attacks. You know, Going back to the Abu Nidal organization back in the 80s when they, um, they bombed the ticket counters in Rome and Vienna. And other organizations took the, that tactic, and it kind of went away for a little while, but it's obviously come back. Uh, we saw it in, in London uh, on 7-7 with the bus you know, blowing up a, a tube full of people with a captive audience or a ticket counter where there's a mass of, of folks uh, with these types of devices is, um, is frankly just very easy to do. It's easy to come by the materials, especially if you're working in individually or in small groups, as was in Brussels. You know, these folks are difficult to detect, but I, I wanna reiterate before we get into it, the, um, the eight pre-attack indicators of terrorist activity, and there'll be a link on the website. You can read more detail on this. You know, the first is financing activities. The second is surveillance. And we know that that's more than just, you know, glassing a, a target with binoculars. There's active elicitation, which is, you know, like polling and, or, you know, like saying to, you know, a school, do you have officers on site? Um, probing security. We all know what that means. Acquiring supplies. That's simple. Suspicious persons in the wrong place. You know, in, in the book Left of Bang, um, you know, you look at baselines and anomalies, people who are in, the, in a place they shouldn't be or people who aren't in a place that should be, you know, so you, you kind of get to know your area of operation and suspicious persons become uh, more easy to spot conducting dry runs, obviously, that's something that the 9-11 attackers did, they took many transcontinental flights, and then of course deploying assets, and that's when, um, you know, in Brussels as you saw, the the, the taxi cab driver noted that these guys were a little bit suspicious, but he didn't go further than that, and of course, surveillance indicates that the two of the bombers, the two that actually killed themselves, were wearing those black gloves on only one hand, either they were Michael Jackson aficionados, or those were dead man switches. So, you know, give me a little of your thought on, on, on what, we're, what we can do to protect these soft targets.
1: Sure. I think well, one of the indicators uh, I think missing from the list is to be aware of significant dates and anniversaries. So clearly, 9-11 is probably our most significant uh, anniversary here in the United States, as well as July 4th and probably Christmas Day. Um, 420, which is right around the corner yep. now, that's a, a significant date uh, for anarchists, uh, Hitler's birthday, the anniversary of uh, Columbine. So um, a lot of people tend to um, to concentrate and, and focus on anniversary dates. Uh, we should we should be hyper vigilant during those times. Um if, if a critical incident were to happen, an active shooter or a terrorist event, right now uh, we're only as good as what we've done to plan for it in advance. So when it happens is not the time to think of a plan to uh, put our minds together and wonder what we're going to do. So we should all be um, scampering around, uh, doing what we can to prepare for these kinds of things. Uh, in, in major cities, we should look to our uh, joint terrorism task forces with the FBI, uh, look at uh, our terrorism liaison officer programs, uh, maybe dust them off, maybe resurrect, maybe start one. Um, we can also uh, look at our critical infrastructure. Uh, many of us uh, received funds Uh, shortly after 9-11 to do uh, assessments of critical infrastructure and create plans to protect them. And maybe we haven't done that in a while. So now's a good time to do that. And it's also a good time to renew alliances with other agencies who can help in in these kinds of uh, situations, a mass casualty incident or a critical incident. Uh, People like your fire department, your EMTs, EMS, uh, public health, even your your city agencies, your power, your water, uh, people who would help in these kinds of situations. And then think about uh, not just short-term uh, response, but also uh, sort of long-term uh, mitigation. So you you do your pre-planning, you do your training, you do your tabletop exercises, and then you have the event. So. Uh, Who's going to be there for 12-hour shifts? Uh, what happens when you need lighting for after uh, dark? What happens when your operational time period goes for two, three, four days at a time? What happens when your your city, you know, unfortunately, your city morgue uh, overfills? Uh, you have to have a, a temporary morgue, a sea C-mort, if you will. So all those things uh, go into account for your big planning Um you should never meet your opposite number, the the person uh, in in the other agency who represents your level on the playing field. It's been said, uh, you shouldn't meet other generals on on the battlefield. You should meet them in, in advance at the planning table. Um, I would also go out, uh, expand, uh, you know, con- the concentric circle, to uh, private industry um, places where. Um, things may be accumulated to advance a terrorism plot. Uh, Rental car companies, uh, budget or U-Haul or some places that uh, rent out the larger vehicles. Uh, Hardware stores, the big box hardware stores that sell in bulk. uh, Chemicals, um, fuels, uh, agricultural supplies, anything that could be uh, made into bombs, certainly uh, lengths of pipes, caps, uh, projectiles, and things of that nature. And then the post office, uh, extremely valuable uh, intelligence information can come from uh, your postal service um, and your delivery services as well. And situational awareness is key. Uh, anytime uh, there's a large uh, theft of uniforms or stolen uh, vehicles, that should go to your JTTF and that information should be uh, synthesize, turn around a bullet, and put out there for the, uh, the field troops.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things where I think we've, we've gotten a little bit of far, uh, field from, we had a lot of really good coordination, um, up and down you know from from federal to state and local and it seems to me from my observation in the last 5 or 6 years it seems to me a lot of agencies at the, especially at the local municipal level are, are making some complaints that they're not getting fed enough information that they can't get enough from from the federal side so they have to be proactive and go get it it's, they they can't just sit back and wait for the the packages to arrive they have to be proactive and get to the JTTF in person and say hey what do you have what are you working on what can i take back to my agency right
1: sure And certainly there is information that should be held close to the vest by by the agencies that deal with um, enforcement. But uh, you see more and more uh, agencies like FEMA that that want to get citizens prepared and want to bring them together, Mm want to push out information for them to see something, say something. Uh, And they also want them to be able to. Uh, have have some sustainability uh, for three to seven days in the event of a mass casualty incident.
0: Yeah. Now, s- touching on the see something, say something, I'll, I, 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 I kind of want to get something off my chest, and that's uh, that. You know, there are times when. You really have to make a call to 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 the police if you're a citizen out there listening to this, and make a difficult one because you don't want to appear yourself to be racist or what have you. But you have to cross that bridge because you know even in San Bernardino, the neighbor had observed you know these guys are looking they look hinky they look something looks wrong here. But they didn't want to get labeled as, as something that they're not. They're just being observant really, and so you know and we have to recognize that generally speaking, the people who are blowing themselves up. Are not Mormons and they're not Methodists. They're they come other of a twisted version of another religion starting with M. Um, and so you know, they people out there have to feel confident that they're not going to get thrown under the bus, um, and that their 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 lead, if you will, that's given to the police is going to be taken seriously and followed up on because even if it's nothing, it has to be addressed. Absolutely. So, you know, I have one other last piece that I'd like to share. Uh, I've I've kind of come up with a seven D's to think about, and you've talked to a couple of them. Um, Defend and and deter, hardening these soft targets, you know, figuring out ways to work with these soft targets, whether it's the, you know, in San Francisco, it's the local muni, the the bus uh, and train uh, metro, Um, wherever wherever you are, figure out ways to create presence, to create that additional barrier so it isn't as easy to hit a soft target. And then to de- detect and uh, deceive and deter. And that's what the FBI is doing. I mean, they detect and they deceive. They they bag these guys on, on the false premise of helping them get you know the tools to commit a crime. And, and and they've been very successful at that. And then the final two Ds are defeat and destroy. And that's the part where it's a, something's already gone off or oh, is just about to. And I'm thinking of Garland, Texas, where those two guys work in security outside the, the cartoon contest. They... They, detect, they, did, they, did, they did actually almost all of these, these um, seven Ds all in one couple of minute period of time. But they defeated and they destroyed that enemy. And in, in, in what we had after San Bernardino is you had a whole lot of cops converge on that, that car and uh, they lit that thing up and they, they defeated that enemy. So uh, I just want to leave that um, for our listeners out there. And, and, and one last note, um, ISIS has this week announced... That um, they have released more than four hundred fighters into Europe. So, uh, and that's what they've that's what they've admitted to. Um, they view Europe the same as the United States. We are called the um, the the far abroad. Um, the near abroad is places like Libya and and the, the interior ring is places like Iraq and and uh, and and uh, Syria. So these fighters that could potentially get here to the United States, we have to be aware of them.
1: Absolutely. And if you're a law enforcement officer and you don't know your plan, that's a good time to get a heads up from your training coordinator and find out what the plan is. Otherwise, there's lots of training sites out there, free training with Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, FEMA, your, your local state agency, your, your post agency, if you will. And, um, and get trained up and, and know what you, you're supposed to do in these incidents. As I've always said, when the time to pre- perform arrives, the time to
0: prepare has passed. We'll talk to you again soon. Hello again, and thank you for clicking and thank you for listening. You're listening to the Police One Podcast, Policing Matters. I'm Doug.
1: This is Jim Dudley.
0: So Jim, you know, there's been some discussion um, over the number of years, really, uh, since um, really since I've been following this stuff about how to have um, law enforcement, and fire, and EMS work more closely together. Um, in March of 2016, a um, policy came to came to light in San Bernardino, California, where. You know, and I know this is a policy in other places, but in San Bernardino, the policy where the, the EMTs, the fire, wouldn't go in until um, the police had secured the scene. I know that's a policy in a lot of places, but a little 12-year-old boy bled out on the scene and witnesses were saying, you know, you got to go help that kid. So it's, it's coming to light for citizens as much as it is now in terms of the, the professionals who have to address this issue. And for me, the beginning, the middle, and the end of this is training. It's it's you ha- If you're going to work together, you have to train together. So, um, you know, I, I want to have a couple of thoughts on that, but first give me your, your thoughts on just the notion of getting officers and fire and, 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 and EMTs to work more closely together.
1: Sure. there's There are a number of calls for service um, that require a multidisciplinary approach. So in an emergency call, critical incident, you um, you may have a dispatch put out a, a call to multiple um, disciplines in response to what, what amounts to an unknown situation, but... There was firefight. There was a hazmat. There was there are injuries. Uh, people need help. So it's essentially a jump ball from there. We all respond: police, fire, EMS, and maybe some other agencies. Uh, somebody knocks over a fire hydrant in the process. So you have uh, DPW, the public works people responding, the water company, uh, the electrical people, whoever. So you've got this jump ball. Uh, somebody's going to get there first. Uh, Hopefully, they set up um, uh, a safe uh, avenue of approach. Uh, You establish ingress and egress. You establish staging areas. And then if there is a physical threat, uh, an armed encounter, active shooter, something of that nature, uh, law enforcement is best prepared to, to handle that. So once the threat is mitigated or uh, suppressed um, then uh, EMS fire I, th- I think it's common in, in a lot of jurisdictions that the policy says mitigate the threat first and then bring in uh, EMS fire but in in several situations like the one you just talked about um, you have people that are dying they're bleeding they're um, they're they're being um, they're being allowed to expire when, when emergency response could save their lives. So we've got to figure out a better plan. Uh, we've got to um, try to cordon off the threat and then get the injured uh, to the life-saving uh, agencies um, as best we could. Uh, several ways to do that. Again, you got to figure it out before the incident. Um, you've got to determine what the roles are. Maybe you train up some people to be, uh, cop docs, or you train them to, to actually be in a stack. If a SWAT team goes into a, into a hot environment where, uh, medical training, uh, personnel can go in and, and assess, uh, victims, um, lots of different ways you can do that. Um, but time is of the essence in those cases. And, um, too many incidents where people have been allowed to bleed out.
0: Yeah. And, you know, in in places like Phoenix that I know for sure this program is happening, they they're giving officers what they call an IFAC, you know, an individual first aid kit. They're trained on basic first aid, not only for themselves and their fellow officers, but for people like that 12 year old boy, you know, where EMS is standing on the other side of the street and unwilling to go, you know, these guys carrying an IFAC, you know, they will, you know, other officers are looking to mitigate the threat while one officer stays with the individual victim and can at least assess, put some dressings on, you know, quick clot gauze and all of that sort of thing, tourniquets if needs be. Um, you know, but you, you're not going to have, um, you know, a, a police officer in every fire station, you know, um, coming out, rolling out on, on, on medical calls. You're not going to have the ability to do a lot of those kind of pie in the sky things. You can train EMTs with the, the use of a vest. You know, the type of movement you you would have in a patrol scenario, or as he mentioned in a SWAT scenario but this goes back to what i was saying earlier it all goes to training the cops are training on the IFACs. the emts are training on how to how to work in the movement and work in the stack work in, and understand and know what bounding and overwatch is and figuring out how to use cover and concealment to get to the the location all of that goes to training for, like i said earlier for me all of this stuff is about getting people to work together in training before they have to go out and do it in the field because you have those what i call y'all come situations Traffic collisions, you know, mass casualty, Aurora, in Aurora, Colorado, there were about 20 runs of police cars um, acting as ambulances because the EMTs would not come in. And, you know, some of those people lived, thankfully, and the, those officers became an ambulance, uh, ambulance driver. So, you know, it's, it, it, that's an improvised solution. It worked a little, but it could work a lot better when you have the, the preparation and the training and the forethought to get together. You know, one of the best examples for me is Urban Shield. You know, you come and you, you go and watch Urban Shield in the Bay Area and all of the disciplines are working really well together. Mm-hmm, and they're, mm-hmm. they're just literally thrown into a scenario and said, fix it, figure it out. Sure. You know?
1: Yeah. I mean, everybody's got their their specialty um, law enforcement in a non um, active shooter type situation. We could certainly act as force protection. Uh, we try to clear um, uh, pathways for these other agencies. Uh, traffic direction, crowd control, things of that nature. Um, but we we really need to meet with, with the other agencies and find out what the priorities are. Once incident command is established, a joint incident command should have a lead fire representative and a lead law enforcement uh, representative to hash out those minor details so that the the boots on the ground people aren't figuring them out. Uh, there's not conflicts where nobody's running over fire hoses. Nobody's breaking through um, a crime scene. And, and never, ever, ever, never, ever, never <laughs> should uh, we see any, anybody from an agency in handcuffs because they interfered in a crime scene. So if life-saving is the number one priority, well, then the crime scene suffers. But um, we need to work together.
0: Yeah. Well, the solutions are out there. There are, there are definitely agencies that are working together really, really well. So, you know, research it online, research it on uh, Police One. Uh, if you don't have a model for working with your other uh, disciplines in your area, that information can be had. Models do exist. And, um, you know, just make it happen for your, for your, your, uh, your, your own agency, but more, more importantly, for the citizens you serve. We'll be right back. Thank you for clicking and thank you for listening. You're listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug.
1: Hi, I'm Jim Dudley.
0: So, Jim, you brought to my attention a program um, taking place uh, in more than one place, but kind of close to home here for you and me in the San Francisco Bay Area in a town called Richmond, which has its share of crime, uh, as anyone who is in this area would know. Um, and it's, I'm going to use the word innovative briefly. Uh, it's certainly thinking outside the box, um, doing some crime prevention with, um, with the cash box. Tell
1: me about it. So in Richmond, California, uh, at one point, uh, 2008 or so, they led the nation per capita in um, violence, if not homicides, and they really needed to change up their tactics a bit. Uh, new then new chief uh, Chris Magnus uh, came in with a a brilliant idea that he said was evidence-based and it was to pay people not to commit crime and uh, the 76 percent drop in homicides over that time period certainly caught the attention uh, nationally Um, similar types of of uh Harm reduction uh, policies have been tried at, at some of the major cities over the past decade or so uh, with mixed success. But um, you can't deny the, uh, the reduction in violence in Richmond. And so essentially the, the, the program goes like this. Uh, the police department identifies individuals, and makes them an offer of, I, I believe it's $1,000 a month, not to commit uh, gun-related um, violence. And um, the, the statistics that I've seen say that four out of five of those individuals who take the stipend do not commit those crimes. So essentially you're paying people not to commit crimes. Well, I have mixed feelings on that. Um, I totally believe in harm reduction strategies. Uh, do we pay people not to commit crimes? Uh, you know, it sticks in my craw a little bit, and it's similar to rewarding uh, students that uh, act out in school. So you you give them perks or you pay them something so that they don't. Meanwhile, the A student never gets in trouble, uh, always sitting in the library cramming, um, socially active and, and other it uh, gets no reward, no mention, no recognition. W- what do you think?
0: I, I, I'm with you, I'm with you. I, I, I you told me about this program and I kind of got outside my body a second there thinking what what are they thinking over there? And it, for me it's it does exactly what you're saying. It rewards, you know, people who have a long history of, of violent crimes, and you know these, as you said earlier, the, the frequent flyers. These are the known criminals. These are the folks who should be in jail, in my opinion. And um, you know, and we're, you know, they their reward should be three hots in the cot, in my opinion. So it's to me, it's a little, it's anathema. It's I used the word innovative earlier in the segment because um, it, it, it's definitely it's definitely thinking differently. Now, this is what I want to try to get to, and I think you agree. Um, I want to hear from everyone out there listening to this podcast what are you doing at your agency that's different that's a crime reduction strategy that's a harm reduction strategy are you are you doing the same thing I think you'd mentioned in washington d c they're doing it right so
1: they're gonna give it a go uh, it is not without costs it's a, a several million dollar program in Richmond they do it with grant money in uh, washington d c um, they're they're doing an estimated cost of uh Twenty-five million dollars over the next four years.
0: I mean, that's to me, that's staggering. That's twenty-five million dollars that could be spent in in a different way. And it's yeah, just my opinion, but
1: sure. Well, when you look at harm reduction strategies and you do the cost analysis, so if you took a look at San Diego's serial inebriate program, mm-hmm. uh, they weighed the benefits of putting uh, chronic inebriates in a hotel, in a bed with medical supervision as opposed to the day in day out pickup and delivery of chronic drunks on the street to medical facilities to jail to courts to incarceration so uh it's in california we're probably a little higher than the national average we're probably about sixty thousand a year in putting somebody in prison per se maybe 30 or $40,000 in in Southern uh, regions. But uh, over the long haul, uh, picking up somebody in an ambulance in in California probably cost you $2,000 easily for transport. So do you pay now or do you pay later? So harm reduction strategies say, we're going to pay something, let's pay something and mitigate the harm.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting idea. Um, I'm not going to pounce all over it, but I, I do want to get um, thoughts uh, from f- folks out there. Email us. This is, this is your call to action. If you're listening to this podcast and you know of a program that's outside the box, like the, the ones we've been discussing, email us at policingmatters, that's one word, Policing Matters at police1.com.
1: Yeah, and, and of course there are a lot of school resource officer programs out there that are very valuable. Cops read to kids, cops color with kids, cops play basketball with kids, midnight basketball, some other programs, but um, let us know about the ones that work, the show real a real reduction in crime in your in your neighborhood or your community.
0: Jim, it's a great idea. Got call for action is something we should be doing on on a lot of our podcasts. So let's let's keep that up. Thank you for listening. This is Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley, Editor-in-Chief of Police One.
1: Hi, welcome back. This is Jim Dudley.
0: Jim, it's um, unfortunate, but it's true, um, that people out there in law enforcement are getting fired. Even chiefs of police are getting early retirement over stuff they've posted on social media. Um, It it should be reminded right up front. The internet is forever. Even if you take something down, someone's going to be able to find it and use it against you. And, and it's, it just astounds me to see officers doing things like posting pictures, a famous one of a, a very attractive young lady from a, a chain restaurant store. Um, holding an AR on the, on the hood of a, uh, of a police officer's squad car. It, it's just astounding that people are still doing this at all, let alone posting it on the Internet. I mean, it, the, the point of the Internet is to try and keep yourself safe on Facebook as opposed to uh, or MySpace, which isn't even your space. It's a public space. You know, would you say something like that in public with people standing around you? Probably not, but you feel the freedom to post it on Facebook. It just it doesn't make any sense to me.
1: Yeah, the trouble, I think, with with social media is the instant media aspect. And we've seen not just law enforcement people, but uh, uh, high-profile politicians. The, we've seen uh, sports figures really step in it by um, falling into their impulse and putting out a tweet that says something that turns around to bite them on the derriere. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Yeah, you mentioned it, Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, these others where uh, you may think it's temporary, if you make a mistake, you try to pull it off, even Snapchat, I think some people are really comfortable with Snapchat because they think eight seconds, it's gone forever. But uh, hey, if I see something coming up from Doug Wiley, and I know it's a good one, I'm getting ready to snap a a screenshot of what he's going to post, right? So it's not, it's not gone forever. So keep that in mind. Um, we've we've run afoul uh, in in our agency from people who would post, uh, you know, kind of dumb material, uh, sensitive material, um, material relating to an active investigation, to an active operation. Um, individuals who posted themselves doing things they shouldn't be doing in uniform, making wild claims. Um, even compromised um, investigations were ongoing operations so it's not just a um, you know a mistake that might be embarrassing it could cost people um, the, a conviction it could cost people uh, their safety or their lives even and it's definitely as you mentioned cost some people uh, their 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 um, their jobs.
0: Yeah, you know, in in a place called uh, I think it's called Surf City. It's in one of the Carolinas. A chief of police posted something on Facebook about um, his opinion on the Black Lives Matter movement. Well, he caught early retirement for that. Um, there was a guy. I think it might have been Detroit. It was a Midwestern city um, who was um, who was facing charges uh, for uh, inappropriate use of force, and a picture of of his AR on the uh, the on the side of the AR. It, it was a, it was inscribed "Your Effed." And, you know, I mean, he, he, he got jacked up for, for essentially the, the, the agency felt like he had a a proclivity or a a court of an an interest in killing. Sure. And, you know, I mean, so you, you, you have these, these things that people say or do on social or, or what have you, that you you put yourself in a really compromised position and there's no reason for it. (laughs) You know, I sometimes call them the drunk blogger. You know, if (laughs) Facebook and, and, and alcohol really don't mix. And it, it, a lot of times you note that some of these dumb posts are happening at two o'clock in the morning. And, you know, that's probably after bar time. And it's just use logic and think it through. You know, if you're going to be safe on Facebook, if you're going to be safe on these, these, these websites, you know, you got to follow some pretty basic you know, settings and your privacy, you know, so people don't track you down as a police officer, but you also have to use basic logic. And when the, if, like I said earlier, if you wouldn't say it out in public in front of a whole group of people, why would you say it on the internet, which is gonna reach even more people? It's just illogical to me.
1: Sure, and most, most departments have a policy that says when and, and, and if you can use information regarding suspects, victims, department, property, logos, vehicles, uniforms, patches, weapons, if it's theirs or if it's on duty. Um, If you would text or or send out a photograph of something from a crime scene or a piece of evidence or a suspect, uh, that opens up the liability of your phone being uh, confiscated and searched as evidence, brought into court as evidence, along with whatever else you might have. and then, and then there are open issues of searching social media in relation to a criminal case. So, not only do you open yourself up to some embarrassment, but uh, to some real, real consequences. So, the bottom line, in my opinion, is know your department's policy in social media. Uh, if you don't, if you don't know it, look it up. If your department doesn't have it, uh, there's all kinds of great sample um, social media policies on Lexapol, uh, Perf, uh, IACP, and, and many, many others. And um, short of that, I would I would say go with your own gut feeling, go with your wince factor. If you think about it and and it makes you wince, then just don't do it.
0: Yeah, and I'll add add to that one other thing, you know, you know, the, the, the really funny guy on your Department, you know he could be great in the squad room. You know he's great in, in in a in a car and late at night. You're not really you're not busy and you're just telling jokes. Make sure that guy knows that Facebook is the pl- is the place to avoid for that type of humor because we know what some of the jokes are like, right? Sure. You, you got to know your you got to know your venue and things like Snapchat, Instagram, all of those um, vine, you know, all these social media things, they're fun and you could be really entertaining on them, but you really have to check yourself and and figure out, you know, wait a minute, wait, wait just a second and figure out if this is something that the rest of the world should hear.
1: Yeah. And if people are including your photos on their social media, uh, ask that they not do it. And if, if they don't, um, listen to your, your plea, then uh, go right to the, the, um, the social media outlet and ask them to remove it.
0: Yeah. And you can also, you can untag yourself. You can't um, help someone posting pictures of you and then tagging you, but you can go out and untag yourself in anything. So there's, in fact, you know, we're going to provide resources to a couple of different, um, Uh, links on Police One here. Uh, I definitely encourage you to check out Laurie Stevens's um, uh, articles on the eight basic uh, privacy settings and the eight advanced basic uh, privacy settings, because those things can really help um, protect you um, from a variety of different things, not the least of which, of course, is People looking for cops on social media and trying to make victims victims of them, whether it's in in cyberspace or in in the real world, um, you know we we know that officers today, you know they they have a target on them, and in cyberspace is just as as, uh, as dangerous. So I do encourage you to check out the privacy settings that Lori tells you about, and uh, just please be careful on the internet.